Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From this time, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Well, there has been a lot happening in this room since many of you were here last. We did our youth retreat in here this past week. Uh, which was a lot of fun. Anyone want to do a woohoo? You can definitely do that, in my opinion. Um, and uh, so the last few days in this room, we have had dance parties. Amen? Actually, I think the main dance, was the main dance party over there? Eh? It's kind of hard to say. Yeah? So there have been dance parties. People sleep in this room now. Actually, I guess people sleep in this room at about this time weekly, but um, but lots of people on purpose with pillows have been sleeping in this very room this weekend for the youth retreat, and um, and more and and there was so much fun stuff going on. I actually asked the youth last night while I was here, like, what did I miss? And they like all start talking at once because there was so much going on. And so I just want to say. Um, if you are in, you know, if you are in a phase of life one way or another where you're not connected with the youth retreat, um, maybe you have kids who used to be in that age bracket, or maybe you have kids who one day will be in that age bracket, or maybe you're just not connected one way or another with that. I just want to say thanks for, you know, kind of your participation in this church family, um, which is ministering to a lot of different people in different age groups and in different ways. Um, thank you for being a part of building a healthy church family that does things um, like with young adults taking time off work and planning for weeks and parents of teenagers investing months of time getting things ready and people like Josh Anderson and Sue Warman and Tammy Wheeler who just kind of pour themselves out and pour their lives out uh, for the sake of 60 teenagers uh, spending a couple of days thinking about what faith means and how faith works um, in Jesus. And so um, I just want to say to all of you, whether you are here or not, cool stuff has been happening um, um, and the, the, lots of fun, lots of laughter, lots of dance parties, and also um, very significant ministry. So thanks for being a part of a church where great stuff like that happens. Um, also, in the theme of great stuff happening, um, I'm going to let Travis say a little bit more about this before the service is over. Um, but speaking of cool things happening, next Sunday, we have mentioned this before in our emails, but next Sunday is the day that Advent, our host congregation here, they are calling next Sunday Field Trip to Redeemer Sunday. And so they have been trying their best to recruit everybody or as many people as possible who worship here on Sunday at 10 a.m. to come and visit uh, a Redeemer service on Sunday afternoon to see what that's like. And so I'm asking you all to be on your best behavior. Don't act like you're... No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm just actually... All I want to do is I just want to say, would you guys be yourselves next week? 
Um, would you be yourselves? And uh, not like the old self, right? The selfish version of the old self. Be the new self in Jesus, which I know over time shows up and has shown up time and time again in being welcoming and hospitable and gracious. And I know that's what you do even without my um, heads up on that. But that's coming up next week. And so if you see a lot of people around that you don't recognize, say hi. Uh, you're part of the hospitality team. Um, so we say that every week and I hope you live like that every week, but especially next week, uh, be a part of the hospitality team if you would. Uh, more, more info to come on that. Okay. So Matthew chapter four, having said all of that, we are going to spend some time in God's word. So keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter four. Um, we generally refer to somebody who follows Jesus as a Christian. That's the term that we generally use for that, right? And Christian is a very good word. I like the word Christian. And it's a biblical word. But it's actually a rare word in the New Testament. It shows up three times in our Bible, you might be surprised to know. But there's another word that describes somebody who follows Jesus. This word is far more common in the New Testament than the word Christian. And that more common word for somebody who follows Jesus is the word disciple. To be a disciple is to listen and learn from a teacher. To be a disciple is also to follow and become like that teacher. And today we're going to learn a little bit about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now let me begin with a couple of comments about how these three paragraphs that Greg Ulenhop read, how these three paragraphs work together. Our passage today in, begins with a paragraph that runs from verse 12 to 17 about the dawning of the kingdom of heaven. So we're going through the gospel of Matthew together as a church. We're learning about Jesus and discipleship. And in this paragraph from chapter 12 to verse 17, we see several things about the dawning of the kingdom of God. First of all, we read that John the Baptist, who we met back in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is now arrested. It's a reminder to us that preaching a message about the kingdom of heaven and calling people to repent of their sins will be costly. It may draw crowds at some times, as it did for John the Baptist, and yet at other times it may put you at odds with people in power. And then we read that Jesus has relocated to Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew sees this as a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah had written about. Light dawning in Israel and light dawning specifically in the region that he calls Galilee of the Gentiles. We could translate that Galilee of the nations. It's the part of Israel that was considered to be the gateway to all the other nations of the earth. And so Matthew sees in this an important aspect of this theme that Jesus came for the nations. Did Jesus come for Israel? Yes. But Jesus also came to spread light to all nations. Go therefore and make disciples among all nations. And so this is significant that Jesus has relocated to Galilee Of the nations. He's ministering to Israel, but in such a way that he's right on the doorstep of taking the message to all nations. And then there's the message of Jesus, which is exactly the same as the message of John the Baptist in Matthew's gospel. Repent for the administration of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. So here we have this first paragraph in this section of scripture showing us that the kingdom of heaven is dawning here on earth. It's arriving, which is a really big deal in the way that the Bible itself and the whole story of the Bible fits together. The kingdom of heaven is dawning. 
And then there's this final paragraph in our passage, verses 23 through 25. And in many ways, it kind of artfully mirrors the themes of that first paragraph. Jesus declares in verse 23, the good news of the kingdom, good news, the kingdom of heaven is dawning. And then in a certain way, we see that the light of the dawning of the kingdom of heaven, it's showing up as Jesus brings deep healing to people. The power and authority of Jesus as the king of the kingdom of heaven is demonstrated as people are healed in deep and profound ways from a variety of ailments. It's as if the fallenness of the world, it's as if the darkness of the world is fleeing at the very presence of Jesus Christ. And then the passage ends by returning to this idea of the geographical spread of the crowds who are now beginning to follow Jesus. Now there's a question at the end of this chapter because as the crowds begin to gather, we don't yet know if these crowds are merely interested in Jesus Or if these crowds are committed to Jesus. It's going to be one of the interesting things that will follow throughout the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first time this theme shows up and so we'll only say a couple words about it. But thousands of people follow Jesus in a sense. Thousands of people express interest in him. Thousands of people will gather as he's spreading the light of the kingdom of heaven as, and as healing is spreading out from him. Thousands will gather as crowds. But after his death and resurrection, only 120 will remain. Which is kind of a shocking reality, right? Kind of something that some of us maybe have seen in our own lives. People who express so much interest in Jesus and yet turn away ultimately. It's a theme that we'll see much more as time goes on. But these two paragraphs that work together about the dawning of the kingdom of heaven and of the gathering of the crowds as the kingdom of heaven dawns. These two paragraphs here serve as kind of, you know, the bun on a cheeseburger. The bun is good, but it's not the point. The point, the meal, the feast, is the burger itself. My apologies to anybody who is vegan or doesn't eat that kind of food. You see, these two paragraphs at the beginning and the end, they're here kind of to spotlight in a literary way what's in the middle, what's at the focal point of this passage. This message about the dawning of the kingdom of heaven and of the spreading of the crowds throughout Israel, they're here to focus our attention in on these verses at the middle of this chapter or the middle of this passage from verses 18 through 22 about the calling of the first disciples. You see, as the kingdom of heaven is dawning and beginning to spread, do you know what Jesus is focused on doing? Making a few disciples. And even as the crowds begin to gather around him, do you know what Jesus is focused on doing? Making a few disciples. And this is important for us if we want to follow Jesus ourselves and if we are going to participate in what Jesus has called us to participate in, the Great Commission, which says, go therefore and make disciples. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus and if we're going to make disciples of Jesus, then what are we called to do in this world as the kingdom of heaven has dawned? And as sometimes even crowds will gather with interest in Jesus, what is it that we're called to do? To make a few disciples. See, we're called to be disciples of Jesus who, like disciples of Jesus, 
make a few disciples of Jesus at a time. It doesn't mean that crowds won't gather. It doesn't mean that important world-shaking things aren't happening in the sovereignty of God. But even as the kingdom of heaven is dawning, and even, even as the crowds begin to gather, what is Jesus doing? He's making a few disciples. And I think this is important for us to key in on because discipleship must be a priority for us as a church today as well. I think all of us will benefit from a couple of minutes of zooming in and thinking about this meat here in the middle of these verses. This meat here about what it means to be a disciple. It's important for us to consider this. Some of us here are aware of how we have faltered as disciples. Some here may simply be coasting in discipleship. Maybe even feeling like the best days of discipleship were sometime in the past. Some here are hungry to grow. Some here are eager to learn more about making disciples, whether in our home or our neighborhood, our church, our city. Some here are still considering Jesus and still considering Christianity. But here's the thing. I think all of us will benefit from a fresh appreciation of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so we're going to take a few minutes here and just consider in the calling of the first disciples, what are some of the important things that we learn here about discipleship? And let's consider, first of all, the surprise of discipleship. The surprise that we see in verses 18 and 19. Would you look there with me again? While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw. I love, I love this. Matthew notes this kind of thing several times. Jesus sees people. Jesus saw two brothers. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now I want to pause and consider for a moment the surprise of what happens here in these verses. Jesus did not invent the idea of discipleship. It was normal in Jesus' day for teachers or rabbis to have people who would follow him and, li- and listen to them and learn from them and follow them and become more like them. It was normal for teachers or rabbis to have disciples. Jesus did not invent the idea of discipleship. But here he's kind of flipping the script on how discipleship happens. Because in Jesus' day, rabbis or teachers would usually have considered it beneath themselves to go and recruit disciples. It was the responsibility of the disciple to come and find a teacher and ask to get to follow. But along comes Jesus. And he sees. He sees Simon and Andrew. And what does he do? He calls. He cares. He sees. He cares. And he calls them. He invites them. He takes a certain loving initiative to seek them out. Just as God has taken a certain kind of loving initiative to seek out me. Perhaps you know that in your life as well. But there's another surprise here because if Jesus is going to seek out disciples, there's this question, why is Jesus seeking out fishermen? Now, I love fishing. I grew up in Southern California, and so I have memories on Thursday nights of going out to the ocean and casting our lines into the water and catching perch or stingrays or even leopard sharks sometimes. I have great warm memories of fishing 
with my family as a child. And for us in our culture today, fishing is usually kind of a nostalgic, leisurely activity. When Simon and Andrew and when James and John were out fishing this afternoon, they were not just doing some nostalgic leisure activity. This was sweaty manual labor that they did day after day in order to make a living. And fishermen in their day were not considered quite as poor as, say, shepherds. They ranked economically and socially higher than some. But they certainly weren't considered the elites of society. They certainly weren't considered to be wealthy. And so there's something surprising about the fact that Jesus comes along and He's ready to call disciples to Himself and He sees fishermen. And he calls them. This would have been counterintuitive in Jesus' day. And I want to suggest to you, it still is kind of surprisingly counterintuitive in our day as well. Sadly, even among Christians. Now, I want to show you a picture here in a second. And some of you are going to think that this picture is a joke. But, um, but this photo that I have here is actually scanned from... The most popular book on church growth in America from 1995 until today. And I'm not going to give you the author's name because I don't want to make fun of the author here or anything like that. But it's just to say that in American culture, we mirror some of the cultural values or some of the cultural ideas that would have been at play in Jesus's day. Do we have that photograph available? There it is. So here is, according to church growth experts, a picture um, that, that appears in one of the most popular books on church growth with the title above it, quote, Our Targets. And so the idea from 1995 on is that if you want to grow as a church, here's what you do. You find, you find people who are well-educated. And you find people who like their job. And you find people who like where they live, and you find people for whom health and fitness are high priorities. You find people who think that enjoy, they are enjoying life even more now than they were five years ago. You find people who are self-satisfied, and so on and so forth. Look, if we're American disciples, this is how you make disciples. You find white dudes in navy blue pleated khakis, right? And you say, that's what a disciple looks like. Now, if there are any white dudes here wearing navy blue pleated khakis, I love you. I too am a white dude who likes my job and is fairly well educated. I hope that we'll reach more people like us, right? That, my point is not that we don't want to reach this guy, but here's the thing. In America, we have these ideas of like, if you want to grow your church, if you want to do really dynamic ministry, there is literally a specific picture of the kind of person you're outreaching. And then along comes Jesus and he says, for my first, second, third, and fourth round pick, I'll take guys who do sweaty manual labor outside in the sun. For my first, second, third, and fourth round pick, I would love to take four humble fishermen. People that the world would look at and say, are you sure you want that guy on your team? People that the world would look at and say, yeah, I don't think that's a good place to start. People that the world would look at and say, they're just fishermen. They kind of smell. And Jesus says, I'd love to start with a group of guys just like that. I'd love to start with a group of four humble fishermen. And listen, this is good news for us if we find ourselves feeling a little bit more like fishermen than that guy. 
For any of us who see the picture of the well-educated and successful guy who feels like he's happier today than he was five years ago, and we say, I'm, maybe I'm not as well-educated, maybe I'm not as satisfied in my job, and I'm certainly not happier today than I was five years ago. Listen, I've got good news for you. Jesus is not nearly as superficial as American Christians are. Jesus would love to take a team of four humble shepherds as the starting point for changing the world. And so if you find yourself in a place of certain kind of humility... If the world around you has sent you messages that you're nothing special, that you're not the the first round draft pick kind of material, that you're not the kind of person to build a world changing movement, listen, better news the gospel brings. Jesus recruits people exactly like us. Jesus would love to start with four humble disciples, four humble fishermen. And listen, I think we need I think we need to rediscover the wonder and the honor of being called to be disciples of Jesus. Here's how the apostle Paul later in the New Testament will talk about this theme. He'll say, "Consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. There's something helpful for us about just admitting it. I wasn't all that. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise by worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of noble birth. I sure wasn't. But, Paul says, God on purpose chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God do you hear how some there should be something unique about the church of Jesus Christ A church in which nobody shows up saying, I got a leg up on all these other clowns. A church where we all show up at the foot of the cross and call one another sister, brother. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us all the wisdom we would ever need from God. And all the righteousness and all the sanctification and all the redemption that we would ever need. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, here's the first thing that we need to understand about discipleship. We need to see the surprise and the wonder of being called by Jesus, not because we're all that, but because he's that loving. There's a second thing that we see here in this passage, not only something about the surprise of discipleship and the surprise of the dignity that Jesus confers on those the world thinks are not that impressive. In addition to the surprise of discipleship, we also see something here about the mission of discipleship. Look with me again at verse 20, if you would. Uh, Excuse me, the end of verse 19. I'm sorry, I'm all messed up here. The end of verse 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Fishers of what? (laughs) See, these guys are used to doing their labor every day for the sake of finding And catching fish. And now Jesus says, I've got a new everyday direction and a new everyday occupation for you. I want you to go and find and catch people. 
It's a reorientation of life for these first disciples that we are caught up in as well if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus or if we call ourselves Christians. Listen, we too are caught up in this kind of calling. Follow me and I will give you a new set of eyes to see your daily life with. You see... The call to discipleship is not only about you being a disciple. The call to discipleship from day one. Do you see kind of the surprise of that in its own way? It's not like Jesus is like, come follow me and I'll give you a trial run. It's not like, come follow me and if you do really well, I'll let you influence other people. Jesus from day one says, come follow me. I'm looking for some humble folks like you. And then he says, I've got a new mission, a new purpose, a new calling full of dignity for you to spend your days living for. And so I wonder if you're a disciple of Jesus, I wonder in what ways you might have your life in alignment with this purpose of Jesus. Can I talk to you a minute just about being a mom? No, I'm not a mom. But I often talk to moms with little kids and if the topic of mission comes up, there's like this guilt thing that falls over mom's shoulders. I see it so often. It's like, I know I should be reaching out to people. I know I should be doing something for the sake of Jesus, but I'm so tired serving these kids all day. May I appeal to you to reconsider what your job of taking care of kids really is? What more wonderful opportunity is there to go fishing for people every day when they come to your breakfast table every morning? What more wonderful opportunity is there to go fishing for people every single day when those kids keep coming back to you and asking you questions? And I know like we get tired of like, okay, enough questions already. But they keep coming and asking question after question after question. It's as if God wants to say, do you see you've got an opportunity and an opportunity and an opportunity to go fishing for people today? To join in Jesus' mission of making disciples right there in your own living room? And I wonder if some others of us might be tempted to kind of say, man, it would be so cool to be with Peter and with Andrew, and with James, and with John, and I get to leave my job behind. Because some of us are like, I'm tired of my job. I'd like to leave that behind. I'd like to move on. I get to leave my job behind. I get to follow Jesus. I get to talk with people about Jesus all day, every day. But what if in Jesus' plan, he's actually got you strategically stationed right where you are on purpose to be involved with his mission right there. At least for a season. Listen, I think it would be cool if more people from our church would spread out throughout all the nations and go to the nations for the sake of fishing for people and making disciples of Jesus in other parts of the world. But here's the thing. If you up and move to another part of the world to make disciples of Jesus, do you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to interact with people who are going to be sinful and messy and flawed and not like you and annoying and all that stuff. And you're going to have to talk with them about Jesus. You're going to have to love them for who they are, where they are. You're going to have to meet them where they are. You're going to have to talk with them about Jesus. And then you're going to have to lead them in the process of hearing more and more about what Jesus has done to give his life for our sins and then to explain to them what it means then to follow him in response to the fact that he's laid down his life for us. Listen, if you go and uproot your life and go to another nation to make disciples of Jesus, awesome! 
But as long as you live here, why not start now loving other people? Even if they're different than you and kind of annoying and kind of challenging and kind of a pain in the neck sometimes. And why not start by meeting them where they are and looking for ways to bring up God and Jesus in your conversations? And why not begin telling people about the hope that you've discovered in Jesus right here in this city, in this vocational calling that you have right now? Why not get engaged in the mission of making disciples of Jesus here and now? Do you really think that people here in Aurora don't need Jesus? Do you really think the mission is only needed in other parts of the world? The mission of Jesus needs desperately to get to other parts of the planet. Amen. I've shared this with you before. A guy named Jack Miller, who founded a missions organization, wrote a really good book on missions. And he has this keen observation that we share in our starting point class. And so if any of you have taken it, you've heard this. Jack Miller points out this guy who founded a missions organization to send people to other nations. He says it's often easier to get Americans to go and preach the gospel in other nations than it is to get Americans to go and preach the gospel to the people who live next door to them. I'm not in any way minimizing the importance of the gospel getting out there, but here's what I'm saying. This calling of discipleship is not just about you. It's about others. And it needs to get to the the nations on the other side of the planet, and it needs to get to some of our neighbors who don't yet know Jesus. And it needs to get to our neighbors who are in our small groups, who are still learning what it means to follow Jesus. Listen, Jesus' call to discipleship includes includes a certain honor and a certain dignity of being called by Jesus, by His grace. And it also includes a certain kind of mission to go and to get involved in what He's doing. This calls us not only to be disciples, but also to make disciples, which includes leading people toward baptism, And also includes leading people deeper and deeper into following Jesus. Let me move on here to another aspect of what we learned here about discipleship. We learned something about the surprise of discipleship. The surprise of being called by Jesus. We learned something here about the mission of discipleship. You're not meant to be a cul-de-sac of grace, but a conduit of it to others, right? We learned something here also about the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. Look with me, if you would, at verse 21. And going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Probably the most striking couple of things that we hear here at first glance is what we read in verse 20 and 22. Immediately, hearing the call from Jesus, they get up and they begin following. But there's something interesting kind of embedded in this passage. Did you notice that one group of brothers seems to leave a little more than the other? One of them seems to leave their boat, and their business. The others have to leave their boat, their business, and their dad. Which is this curious dimension of discipleship. Following Jesus will often cost each and every one of us something. But that cost will not be felt in exactly the same way for each and every one of us. Now, on this leaving their dad thing, there's a few things that should be said there very brief, even if very briefly. One of them is that they aren't severing all relationship with their parents. In fact, in Matthew chapter 20, there's a sweet little story about how James and John and their mom 
come together to Jesus. So their mom is apparently traveling along with them and presume, and they're known as the sons of Zebedee throughout the, throughout their time with Jesus. So they're not severing all relationship with him permanently. And we should also add that when Paul or when Peter write letters to churches in the New Testament, they don't write to kids and say, children, here's our instruction for you. Disown your parents. You say, children, honor your father and mother. Right? There's a few things that we should add there by way of nuance. But, but you still see the weight of what we're looking at here, right? Following Jesus is not just a nice little add-on to their lives. You just keep doing things exactly as you're doing it, and then when you need a little extra Jesus syrup, just pour on a little extra Jesus syrup. Following Jesus proves costly for these first disciples and not always in exactly the same ways. In fact, this is a theme that's going to continue on. After Jesus dies on the cross for our sins and rises again in new life, you remember that Peter, the guy called here who begins following Peter ends up denying Jesus three times. A good start doesn't always equal a path forward without stumbling. But then after his death and resurrection, Jesus extends forgiveness and mercy to Peter. Stumbling doesn't mean the end of your walk with Christ. Not because of his grace. And after Jesus extends mercy to Peter, they're walking by the sea together again. And there's this moment where Jesus says to Peter, I'm calling you to feed my sheep. This is in John chapter 21. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. In other words, Jesus told Peter, you're going to have to die as a martyr. And then after saying this, Jesus says to him again, follow me. Keep on following. There's a sweet little moment that John recalls right after that very next verse in John 21, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So here's John following a few feet behind. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about that guy? In other words, does he have to die too? Shouldn't this cost be felt equally by all of us disciples? And here are Jesus' words. If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus doesn't seem scared or offended by this idea that some of us will feel the cost of following Jesus a little bit differently than others will. And this is very uneasy for us because we live in a culture and a world that keeps pushing messages into our guts saying the goal of life is to is to be yourself. The goal of life is to fulfill yourself. The goal of life is to satisfy yourself. The goal of life is to indulge yourself. The goal of life is to express yourself. And then along comes Jesus and he says things like this. If anyone would follow after me, he must deny himself. And we won't all feel that in quite the same way. Some of us will walk through long seasons of depression or doubt. And we'll feel like we are struggling and fighting for our lives. 
And we think it is just so difficult for me to keep on going. Why does the journey of faith have to feel this challenging for me? Sometimes we might even want to turn around and say, what about him? How come he gets to smile his way through the Christian life? And Jesus says with love, you follow me. Keep on following. I read a couple books this last year by Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction. And a common theme that comes up in those conversations is this theme that it feels so challenging, so difficult, so unfair that Jesus would call me to follow him in a life of devoted singleness when some of my friends that I grew up with get to go and be married. And Jesus lovingly looks at brothers and sisters and he embraces them and he cares. And yet he says, you Keep on following me. Jesus is not surprised by the cost. In fact, Jesus advertises the cost right up front on the label of the package, if you will. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus doesn't promise a peaceful, easy, rosy, nice, cheerful path forward. He says some seasons might feel more like dying than thriving. Some seasons might feel more like denying yourself than indulging yourself. Count the cost. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 20th century wrote a magnificent piece on discipleship And gave us this concept that too often Christians have become content with what he calls cheap grace. And he defines cheap grace like this. He says, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. Just everybody can be forgiven, no need to turn. But that's not the message of the kingdom, is it? Cheap grace is baptism without the discipline of community. Cheap grace is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolute assurance of pardon without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Living incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder if some of us even if we've grown up in or around the church and we love talking about grace and we love talking about Jesus, I wonder if we've been tempted or lured toward ideas of cheap grace instead of real discipleship of the real and living Jesus. But that brings us to one final thing and I'm going to keep this one concise. But we also need to notice the focus of discipleship. We've talked so far a good deal about some of what discipleship means for us. It's going to involve getting engaged in the kind of work Jesus did, people work, which is sometimes messy. It's going to involve cost. For each and every one of us, we're called to take up our cross and deny ourselves. And we end up maybe saying, Jesus, then is it worth it? Or maybe I can put the question to you, why would it be worth it? And I think the answer that led Simon and Andrew and James and John to get out of their boats and leave things behind is the same answer that should motivate us to say, I know there will be a cost and yet I think it's worth it. You know what the answer is? It was worth it for Peter and Andrew and James and John because they were called not just to follow a set of life principles, 
They were called to follow a person full of grace and truth and mercy and love. They were called not just to follow a religion. They were called to follow a person, Jesus Christ. And do you know what makes discipleship worth it for us? Is that we are not just called to follow a set of principles. And we are called not just to participate in some kind of organized religion. No, we are called to follow not a thing, not a what, but a who, a somebody. And not just any old somebody. A somebody who loved us so much that he came to seek and to save the lost. A somebody who came not to take and take and take from us, but a somebody who came to give and give and give. A son of man who came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his own life as a ransom to set many free. You see, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who understood Cheap grace and costly grace so well understood this. Costly grace is costly because it calls us to discipleship. Make no mistake, the call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die. Let's be clear about that. But the call to come and die is worth it. Why? Answer, because of Jesus. Here's what Bonhoeffer notices. Costly grace is costly because it calls to discipleship, but it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, as I invite you today to consider the call to discipleship, I want to encourage you that this call includes you. Don't write yourself out. And I want to encourage you that this life is going to, this call to discipleship is going to reshape everything. It's going to get you involved in the mission of Jesus every day for the rest of your life. And I want to be totally honest and transparent. It's going to cost each one of us something. But I also want to tell you it's going to be worth it. Why? Because it's a call to follow Jesus. And while the road of following him through this life, like his own road in this life, works like this, first suffering and then glory, we ourselves too will follow through a path that first feels like denying ourselves and dies to, and dying to ourselves, but it will lead to life and glory forevermore. When we are one day gathered around the Lamb who was slain. Alongside brothers and sisters from every language, tongue, tribe, and so forth. Hollering out. Not, Jesus, why did it cost so much? But hollering out worthy is the Lamb who was slain. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve us the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.